When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for that occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Mattithiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Marseiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ezra opened the book. All the people before could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hand and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Paliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been known to them. And verse 18. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. This is the word of the Lord. I think it is God's grace that the names of the people we'll look at this morning are Ezra and Nehemiah and not Hashbadana. I can't even pronounce the rest. You did brilliantly. Thank you so much for reading for us. Um, I'm going to pray before we look at that chapter together. Heavenly Father, as we read about those who are thankful for your words, we echo their prayers and say that we are thankful for your word this morning. Thank you that it is alive and that it speaks to us today. Thank you that we can open it afresh every time and you will speak to us through it. 
speak to each of us where we find ourselves this morning and speak to us in ways that lead to our transformation and to the transformation of the world around us. And so pray that you would do just that this morning. Help us to open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear from you this morning. May we hear from you through your word and by your spirit which is moving amongst us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're back in Nehemiah after a very, very long break. The last time we were in Nehemiah was the 8th of December, if you can remember back that far. So it's probably worth just a little bit of a recap about what we saw in those few weeks before Christmas. Partly as a reminder, I think, to all of us, and partly also for any who are new and who weren't here before Christmas. Well, what have we seen so far in Nehemiah? Well, very, very briefly... The first seven chapters of this book, Nehemiah, um, are all about the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. That's what we saw in those first six or seven chapters. We learned all about God's people. We saw God's people. Many of them have already been exiled from Jerusalem, but we see Nehemiah insist and plea. He says, I want to rebuild the wall. The wall, of course, had been destroyed the wall, which signified in many ways God's love and God's protection and almost, in a sense, God's sovereignty. Well, it had been destroyed. And so Nehemiah saw that destruction and knew he had to do something about it. And what we see in the first seven chapters of Nehemiah is really him brick by brick rebuilding the wall, undertaking this task of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. He rebuilds the wall that is more than just a physical wall. It is, of course, a statement of who God is, of his love and of his protection for his people. And along that way, we see Nehemiah face um, what seems like endless opposition. Time and time again, he comes up against people, three protagonists in particular, who are desperate to take him off course. And despite the number of attempts to distract him, to draw his eyes away from what he was doing, despite the people who wanted to stop him rebuilding the walls, Nehemiah, as we saw before Christmas, is resolute in the task that lies ahead of him. He knows his job is to rebuild the wall And so he gets on with the task, and he does it. We see God's faithfulness in it, and what we haven't seen yet, but what we read at the end of chapter 6, is that the rebuilding task has now been finished. comes right at the end of chapter 6 in verse 15. The wall was completed, it says, on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. The great rebuilding task of the wall is done. Nehemiah is finished. And then what we see in chapter 7, which um, we haven't looked at in this series, and if you flick back, I think, a page in your Bibles, you'll see that that is also full of wonderful Hebrew names. Um, What we see in that chapter is Nehemiah beginning a sort of reassembling process of God's people. It's a great um, sociological reorganization process that he goes through. All these names and all these numbers represent God's people. They're not just names and numbers. They're people, children, sons and daughters of God. And he goes through this great project of kind of bringing the exiled back to their homeland in the shadow of these newly restored walls. And he tries to bring some semblance of order to a community that is finding its feet again, that is finding its location again, and more than anything is remembering its identity again. And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter 8 this morning. The walls have been finished. The rebuilding project is done. Despite the distraction, Nehemiah has done the task he set out to do. And he's also begun to return God's people to their rightful place amidst these amazing walls that speak of God's love and God's protection and God's strength. In chapter 8, 
is, is really a pivot point in the book of Nehemiah. It's a hinge point in this part of the story of God. And it's that hinge point because, well, the first seven chapters have been just that. They've been about rebuilding the wall. They've been about the physical rebuilding, brick by brick, of this wall. What remains now in the book of Nehemiah, starting in this chapter, is the rebuilding of God's people. So we've had the rebuilding of the wall, the physical rebuilding of this wall around the city. We now shift to the rebuilding of God's people, an exiled people, a people who've left their homeland, whose identity has been questioned and challenged. The shift is from the rebuilding of the wall to the building of the people, from construction, we might say, to instruction. God has, of course, been interested in building of the wall. He wanted Nehemiah to do it, but he's more interested, I think, in the building of the people. And that's because, ultimately, it is no use us having the best buildings in all of the land. It is no use us having the gadgets, the gimmicks, even, dare I say, the very comfortable brand new chairs. It is no use us having them as a family of God if what is inside is dead, We can have all the buildings and the chairs and the gimmicks and the technology, but if we ourselves aren't alive with God, if we aren't alive with his Holy Spirit within us, then then how do we think we will see the world around us transformed for him? More so, how will we see ourselves transformed for him? The walls have been rebuilt. The people now need to be built up. And that's really where we find ourselves this morning. Nehemiah, I think, recognizes that. He knows that the building of the walls was not the end of the story. And in fact, amazingly, God's people see this too. I don't know if you caught that right at the beginning of the reading this morning. It's the people who start to take over the action. Up until now, it's been Nehemiah as the main character. Nehemiah does this. Nehemiah does that. But now God's people step in. I don't know whether you were counting. You probably weren't. How many times um, it's referenced the people in this passage? Fourteen. Fourteen times God's people are referenced in this passage. God's spirit is so at work in this newly regathered people of God in Jerusalem. And it starts in verse 1. All of the people, that's about 50,000 of them. 50,000 people. All the people came together as one. Just imagine that. It's a football stadium's worth of people. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. What we see here is a hunger for a revival of God's work amongst his people. We see a people of God hungry to know him, to understand what it is he has planned for them, And to see him move amongst them. And this is coming, note, from the people. It's not coming from the leaders. It is coming from the people themselves. They are the ones saying, we want Ezra to come and read the books. These are the first five books of what we now call the Old Testament. We see them hungry for God to move amongst them. Hungry to what we might call a revival. And I think what we see in this passage, in this passage, I think of revival, are are three characteristics, three definitions of a people who are hungry for God. Three ways in which they act and respond to God's word that show that they are desperate for revival. And as well as them being characteristics of people who are already hungry for God, well, these are also things that we can be doing to feed our hunger for God and to increase our hunger for God. 
So the more we do these things that we'll see God's people doing, well, then the hungrier we get for him. And this is how we begin to step into revival, how we begin to step into being people who are alive with him, who see the world around us transformed. The first thing we see, well, I've touched on it already, is there in verse 1, we see a hunger, a raw hunger for God's word. It's right there in verse 1. The people command Ezra to come and read God's word for them. God's word would have been likely the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses or penned in many ways by Moses. And this is the first time as well we've come across Ezra in this story. Up until now, it's all been Nehemiah. And suddenly we get Ezra wheeled out to come and read the books. Now, Ezra's book, or the book that has his name, comes immediately before Nehemiah in our Bibles. And actually, the two really go hand in hand together. They're part of the same story. So while for us, Ezra is a new character, he's not new in this wider story. Ezra is trusted. He's known. He's a wise man, a man of integrity. And the thing about him is he was committed to God, committed to God's word. In Ezra chapter 7, 710, we read this. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord, to its teaching, its decrees, and the laws in Israel. So when they summon Ezra, they are summoning someone who himself is steeped in the word of God. And really, they're looking for someone who knows God's word to be not just informational, but transformational. They look at Ezra and they see someone who himself has been transformed by the word of God. It's not just about the information they can get from it. It's about the transformation it brings. And that's why they get Ezra to come and read to them. When they're hungry for God's word, Ezra's the perfect person to call on. And notice that he doesn't come and deliver a sermon based on God's word He simply comes and begins reading scripture. He reads, in fact, for some six hours from daybreak to noon. No matter how comfy the chair, I tell you, six hours would start to feel a long time. We would probably be tempted, I know I would, to get distracted within a six-hour period, wouldn't we? Well, just in case you're wondering whether God's people decided to check their email during Ezra's reading of scripture, verse 3 tells us, that they listened attentively. They listened attentively, yeah. Now, I can't, I can't be 100% sure, but my read of that is that we're supposed to read that as saying, do you know what? They hung on every word. This was God's word being read to them. And so they didn't drift in and out as we do when we're watching telly in the evening, checking our email in the one hand, reading the newspaper in the other, and with the news on in the background. No, they listened attentively. They tuned in. They tuned into God's word. They hadn't heard it read for years, for generations. Well, here it was. They tuned in. They were hungry, hanging on every word. They wanted more. And in fact, Ezra goes on and does this day after day after day. These are people hungry for the word of God. And what does that mean for us? Well, I think it comes down really, in a sense, to asking the question of what forms us. What is it that's forming us? Because we're all formed by something, right? That we're all formed by the things we take in. If all we ever read is one genre of book or one type of newspaper or all we ever watch is one type of program, the reality is that will form us. We might not know it, we might not see it, but that will form us. We're shaped by what we consume. And what we see here is God's people desperate to come back to him, to know him, to see him move. Well, they know there's only one place they can go. And that is to his word. 
They have to go back to his word. They have to ask for God's word to be read for them because they long to hear from God. They want to know about him. They want to connect with him. They want to hear about how to live the life that he set out for them. They want to be a people transformed by God through his word. And friends, let me tell you, the start of a new year provides a wonderful opportunity for us to ask the question of what it is we're hungry for. What is it in our lives that is currently shaping us and forming us? And more so the other question, well, what is it that will help us to be hungry for God? And what is it that will help us feed on God? We see here a people desperate to hear his word read, hungry, attentively listening day after day, hour after hour to the living word of God. There is no better place for us to start than by dwelling in God's word. So if the first thing we see in this passage is a people who are hungry for God's word, well, the second is that we see a people who respond to it. I think this is key because so often we can just read God's word and then shut the covers and put it away. We can read it and almost dismiss it at times. Well, in verses 9 to 12 of this passage, we see God's people respond to what they've heard Ezra read them. This is part of what it means, I think, to listen attentively. Listening attentively doesn't, I think, just mean listening well, although that is certainly part of it. It means listening expectantly. Listening expectantly that God is at work within us, doing a work inside of us as we listen and speaking to us through his word. We see in verse 9 that the people are weeping. We see them weeping in response to what they have heard. It doesn't tell us in the text why they're weeping, but it's almost certainly an act of repentance. As God's people have heard his word read, they come to realize just how much they fall short of what he's asking of them. They come to realize how deep the sin that pervades all of who we are, and that recognition leads them to weep. It takes the team of Ezra and Nehemiah to come along and to comfort the people, and they tell them, don't weep. And then they rather beautifully, beautifully respond by, in fact, urging the people of God to rejoice. Further than that, they're to respond by rejoicing, by having a party. Wonderful words that we find in verse 10. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send, those who have no, or send some to those who have nothing repaired. And then this wonderful verse. This day is holy to our God. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. How are they able to change suddenly from weeping to partying, from weeping to rejoicing? The answer is there in verse 12. The people understood the words that had been made known to them. The people understood the words that had been made known to them. Their rejoicing flows from this renewed understanding of God's word as they respond to what they are hearing. Their understanding of God's graciousness and goodness is expanding. Their vision of him is growing. They are understanding again their place as his children. There is, of course, a time for weeping and repentance, and that is one way we respond to the word of God. But God's love also brings joy and hope and peace. And it is, of course, the joy of the Lord that is our strength. God's people here are responding deeply to his word. The more they get to know him, the more they hear of him, well, the more they respond to him. And they do so, I think, in incredibly real and physical, tangible ways. I don't know when the last time was that you 
wept at the state of our broken world, that you sat and watched the news or read the newspaper and shed tears over the ways we have gone wrong. If I'm honest, I can't remember the last time I did that. Equally, when was the last time I threw a massive party for no other reason than to celebrate the overwhelming goodness and graciousness of God who is our strength? Now, of course, I'm not talking here about whipping up an emotional frenzy. Our response has to be genuine. But I find this such a powerful reminder that God's word isn't just something informational. It's not just something we learn about God from. It is intended to be responded to in a transformational way. It isn't just a list of facts, but it leads us into God's presence. His word teaches us about his character, his heart. It reveals to us our adoption as his children, his sons and daughters. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. When we read the scriptures this way, attentively, we can't help but begin to be transformed by God as his spirit works in us, as we encounter him through these words. So we see the people of God hunger for his word. We see them then respond to his word as they hear it. And finally, we see them obey his word. In um, verses 13 to 17, we find um, ourselves in the next day of the story, and a smaller group has gathered around Ezra. It's a smaller group of some of the leaders of those who've come back, and they gather around Ezra, and they read the word together, and they discover that that God has actually commanded that at certain points in the year, his people um, are requested to live in temporary accommodation. Um, This is what the Jewish community now calls the Festival of the Booths or the Festival of the Tabernacles that during the seventh month they're supposed to go and live in these shelters. And they discover this in the Word, or they rediscover this, I should say, in the Word. Um, The point actually isn't so much what God's asked his people to do in this context, although it is actually a beautiful thing with wonderful resonances, I think, to the Exodus story. But really the point is he asks his people to do this and they obey his commands. It would have been so easy, I think, at this point for God's people to dismiss this as a bit of a backward step. To say, actually, do you know what? We've, we've just come back. We've just got back to this place. The walls have just been rebuilt. We don't need more things to be doing. We don't need more commands. That was for them. That was for the ancestors. That's not for us. But God's people hear what's written in his word, and they obey it. They act on it. They do what he's saying to them. I wonder if sometimes it's easy for us to choose not to listen to what God is saying to us. It might be that the things he's saying are hard, will compromise us will cost something of us. It's easy, isn't it? And I speak from my own experience to dismiss things as for other people, for other times, for other contexts, or simply for the next day when we can't get round to it today. But the thing is, the true joy, the joy of the Lord, that which is our strength, is only found in the life lived with and for and through God. Try as we might, we won't find that joy anywhere else. In this passage, God's people heed what he's saying to them. And look at what happens in verse 17. Their joy was very great. It's because they do what God says to them. God knows what is best, and they know that God knows what is best. And so when he says do this, they do it. They might have questions. They might wonder what's going on. It might seem a little weird, but they still do it. And as a result, the joy of the Lord is great amongst them. 
God's people, we've seen, have hungered for his word. They've responded to his word. They've obeyed his word. And they now experience the joy that comes from a life lived with God, creator and sustainer. As I close, what might it look like for us to be a people who hunger for God's word? What might it be like for us as a church at the start of this new year to commit to being people who hunger for God's word, but not just who hunger for it, to be people who hunger for it and then respond to it and then obey it? Effectively, what would it look like for us to become a people who long for and hunger for revival of God's spirit in this place and in the communities around us? For the restored people of Jerusalem, it was God's written word that they longed for, that they craved. It was that that Ezra read to them. So are we committed to spending time with the scriptures? Is this book the thing that forms us more than anything else? Are we committed to praying these words, to reading these words, not just for information, but for transformation? If you aren't doing so regularly already, then can I encourage you to commit to that for this year. Take some time over the next few days to work out what it looks like for you. It will look different for all of us. These days there are apps, notes, audio Bibles, you name it, it is out there. Come and chat to us if you want to know more. But more than anything, I would urge you, find a way to be hungering for God's word in 2020. It is the most wonderful place to start. But as well as God's written word, We also, this side of Calvary, have the privilege and the utter joy of invitation into relationship with God's living word, Jesus Christ. When the people of Jerusalem gathered to hear God's word read at the start of today's passage, I don't think it's any coincidence that they gather at the water gate. It is the one place in the city where fresh water was brought in, the one place where life was brought in through fresh, clean, drinkable water, and that brought life and flourishing to the city. Hundreds of years later, Jesus would invite all those who are thirsty to come and drink from him, going on to say that whoever believes in him, rivers of living water would flow from within them. Jesus Christ is the living word who opens to us all of God's word. And as we hunger and thirst for more of God, may we turn to the written word and the living word, Jesus Christ. And let's ask that God would meet us there, that he would refresh us, restore us, and stir our hearts to live for him. To be transformed people who by his spirit see the world around us transformed for his praise and for his glory. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we stand at the beginning of this new year hungry for you and hungry to see you work in our lives and in the life of this church and this community. And so through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the living water, who quenches our thirst, we cry out and say, come Holy Spirit, fill our hearts this morning with a fresh hunger to know you, a fresh desire to see you move, to read your word, to be changed and challenged and transformed by your word. Help us to listen to what you are saying to us attentively, 
to listen to the prompting of your spirit. And we do all these things so that your kingdom may come in our lives, in the life of this church, and in the life of this city. So open your words to us this year, both your written words and your living words, Jesus Christ. Draw us into relationship with him. Open your word to us. Help our hearts and our minds expand as we read your word and encounter your word in your Son. Come, Holy Spirit. And we ask that your kingdom would come in us this morning. Amen.